The title for today's sermon is Urban Renewal and is taken from Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 48. I'd like to begin by asking a question. What is it that makes you cry? Some will flippantly say, oh, physical pain or onions, but I'm not speaking of those kind of tears. I'm speaking of emotional tears. Being married now for almost 40 years, I know what makes women cry. Most will cry at the birth of a newborn or at a wedding. Most all of us will cry at the death of a loved one. Some of us will get sad and cry over sad movies. Some of us cry over situations in life that we can't change and that we have no control over. Others, men, I think, are are particularly different than women. Um, Well, for example, let me ask the men, when was the last time you cried? Do you remember? The last time I cried was when the Cubs lost the 1984 playoffs. (laughs) We get emotional over different things, don't we? (laughs) But we should get emotional and cry over spiritual things because that's what really matters. We've seen Jesus making his way from the Galilee to Jerusalem to offer himself, first of all, to be the king of Israel, and then secondly, to die for mankind's sin. Unfortunately, the nation of Israel will refuse to receive him as their king, and this brings sadness and grief to the Lord. Now, you'll recall, if you were here with us the last time we were together, I spoke about the so-called triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Now we look at the next event that Luke has recorded in the Passion Week, and for us to have an accurate picture of what transpires during that time, we need to understand that uh, these events are laid out differently and that we must piece them together from the four gospel accounts. When we do so, we find out that Jesus arrived from Jericho on Friday afternoon, and because it was the Passover, he went directly to Bethany, where Mary and Martha were his hosts. Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with them. And since the Sabbath begins at sundown Friday and ends at sundown Saturday, Jesus would not have traveled on that day because he would not have wanted to violate the law a great distance. So that's why he stayed in Bethany. So it would be the next day, Sunday, the first day of the week, that Jesus entered into Jerusalem riding on on a colt to offer himself to be the king of the Jews. Consequently... It would have been Monday that Jesus came to pronounce himself to be prophet and to bring judgment upon unbelieving Israel. He would then continue on that day to the temple where he would reclaim the house of God from those who violated it. As you know, the holy place was supposed to be set aside as a place of prayer and worship. But the religious elites, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the others, had turned it into a place of commerce. So for the second time, Jesus enters the temple to restore it to its purpose. Jesus clears the house of God of those who have defiled it, and he then leaves, if you will, for a far country where he will receive his kingship. So let's begin by looking at the prophecy Jesus shares concerning the coming destruction of Jerusalem and also of the nation of Israel. He arises early on Monday morning and gathers his disciples and that sets off on a short walk to Jerusalem from Bethany. This would be a walk of about approximately two miles. And as he reached the crest of the mount that is called Olivet, he stops and he observes the magnificent view that lies before him. If you've been following Lila our dear Leela Thomas on Facebook, you've seen some pictures from Israel lately on, on that. On the left, as he looks down upon the city from the Mount of Olivet, he can see all the homes of the Jerusalemites. Scattered amongst them are the magnificent buildings that have been placed there by Herod and the Roman government as well. On the right, his eyes come to rest, however, on the temple of God, the holy place. Well, with that as our introduction... Would you turn with me now in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19? 
where we will pick up with verse 41. Here we find Jesus as the prophet sharing what will happen to Israel in the near future. If you need to use the Pew Bible, by the way, you can find our text on page 1048. Again, it's Luke chapter 19 and verse 41. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. If you had a Greek text, you could see that this literally says, as he, appro- as he came near and saw the city, he wept over it. You see, the name of the city Jerusalem is not actually in the Greek text, but has been supplied by translators for clarity's sake. As I stated before, Luke is the only gospel that records some events, and this is one of those events that is found uniquely in his gospel. The reason for that, I believe, is that Luke is writing to Gentiles rather than Jews who would have had an interest in this. Now, most commentators think that the background to the text that we're going to be looking at is based on the experiences of many of the Old Testament prophets who also, in like manner, wept over the city of Jerusalem and a coming destruction for it. As you know, Jerusalem is a wonderful place. It is called the City of David, the Holy City. It is a city of great privilege and blessing, Having been there several times, I know that to be true. Jerusalem had the privilege of experiencing the ministry of all the prophets of Israel. God sent the prophets to guide and to warn the children of Israel. The major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, including the minor prophets like Micah and Hosea, they all ministered in and around Jerusalem. Jerusalem was also the place that the Israelite kings ruled from. At times, these kings had a sway over great empire, a great empire. The kingdoms of David was a huge empire. Solomon expanded that, and Hezekiah also had a great empire that he ruled over. But Jerusalem's greatest privilege was to host the temple of God, in which the Ark of the Covenant rested and testified to the people of God's care and love for them. Jerusalem, particularly the temple site, symbolized the presence and the blessing of God. The temple had been built by Herod, and it was a magnificent place. It was considered to be one of the architectural wonders of the world at the time. Yet all of this was about to come to a sudden end, according to Jesus. As you know, Jesus had been welcomed into the city. We looked at that the last time I was with you. By his disciples, and they proclaimed, his disciples proclaimed him to be the king unto David, who was king before him. Jerusalem, because it was the seat of royal power, was the place that any Jewish king would rule from. The Lord had long intended that Jerusalem be the center of the kingdom of peace. So the disciples naturally had this expectation that Jesus would institute a kingdom of peace. That Jesus would bring change, change in the history of Israel, a change for themselves. And that would be by the elimination of the Roman threat. So on this Monday morning, everything looked great. Everyone was positive. And yet in one week's time, Jesus would be dead, having been crucified just outside the city gates. Why was this to be? Well, it was not because of the disciples and what they had hoped and planned for. Uh, It was not because of anything that they had going on in their hearts and mind. It was because the people of Israel and the leadership rejected Jesus Christ as their king. So as Jesus looks down from the crest of the Mount of Olives unto the city, Jesus stops and he weeps over Jerusalem. This is the city that refused to receive him and the peace that he brought. The nation turns her proverbial back upon Christ. It rejects him, and then it calls for his death, just as it had done for many of the prophets who had preceded him. This should remind us of what Jeremiah experienced, Isaiah experienced, and Elisha experienced. All three prophets were well known for their prophecies of the coming destruction of Israel for the apostasy of the people. So too, Jesus now weeps over the city 
for it too will apostatize. Let me share an example of this with you from 2 Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. Here we read the, ver- the words of Elisha, <coughs> who also predicts the destruction of Israel by the Arameans who are led by Hazael. We read this. Elisha fixed his gaze steadily upon him, that's Hazael, until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? Elisha answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the sons of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire, and their young men you will kill with the sword, and their little ones you will dash into pieces, and their women with children you will rip up. Clearly, Israel was going to be punished for their sin of apostasy by God. The prophet Jeremiah also foresaw this day in the destruction of Jerusalem. For in Jeremiah chapter 8, he speaking the words of God says this, My sorrow is beyond healing. My heart is faint within me. Behold, listen, the cry of my people from a distant land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not within her? Why have they provoked me with their graven images, with their foreign idols? Harvest is past. Summer is ended. And we are not saved. For the brokenness of the daughter of my people, I am broken. I mourn. Dismay has taken hold of me. Oh, that the head were, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain daughter of my people. And once again, there's a reference in Psalm 137, where the psalmist speaks of the coming destruction of Israel in 587 B.C., when the people are carried off into exile, into Babylon. We read, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst... Of it was hung our harps. For there our captors demanded us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief, chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to the very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, how blessed we will be who repays you with the recompense for which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes the little ones against the rock. So the nation of Israel will be punished again and again, and the city of Jerusalem will be raised over and over. Why? These were the judgments of God upon his people for their apostasy, their unbelief, their turning to idols and other gods. Now the Lord himself stands looking down upon the city, looking down upon the place that was supposed to be the city of peace, and he weeps. And he pronounces the judgment of God once again upon it. The same city that the prophets that came before him announced judgment. In verse 42 we read the prophecy in which Jesus announces judgment upon Israel. He says, If, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Notice Jesus begins by acknowledging the ignorance of the Jewish people concerning the importance of this day. If you've got a pen, you might want to circle that. Some people like to tell me that that, uh, our faith arises out of our emotions. They say the problem with our brand of evangelicalism is that we are all head knowledge rather than knowing God from the knowledge of the heart. They say that faith really emanates from our emotions. They say that we should be more emotional about it. I'd like you to focus in on the words here. Notice that Jesus speaks to Israel about the the coming judgment of God stemming from a lack of knowledge 
not emotion. Jesus says that they had known, not felt, that if they had known that this day was coming, they would have done the things that would have brought about peace. But they didn't. Looking at the verse again, notice the words, even you, you, even you. They are plural words. And it refers to the nation as a whole and to the individuals of the nation. The you is in the emphatic place position in the Greek sentence, which means it's pushed all the way to the very front of the verse for emphasis. So it literally reads, rather than what your Bible says, which has been translated to make it easy for you to understand. It really begins this way. If you, even you, had known... You should they you see they should have known. Each individual personal accountability. Every Jew was culpable for what was about to happen. This judgment was being brought upon them for their attitudes towards God. They should have known and understood the meaning of this day, says Jesus. They should have seen it coming, but they chose not to see it nor to prepare for it. The phrase, this day, is a technical term in the Greek, and it points to the day of Jesus' arrival. That day, the day of the Lord, if you would. When Jesus comes to offer himself to the people of Israel to be their king. That's why he rode into the city of Jerusalem on a colt. To offer himself to be their king. They should have known that it was coming. John the Baptist said that the kingdom of God was at hand. Jesus said the kingdom of God was near. It was now. It was within your grasp. This is the day that Jesus offered himself to be the king of Israel. This day, not just any day, but this day. When he made his royal entrance into the city of privilege. This day had been predicted 490 years before. It just wasn't by circumstance, by happenstance. It happened uh, according to Daniel in chapter 29, verse 33. Intentionally, we read there in the book of Daniel, so you are to know and to discern that day from which the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be 70 weeks and 62, seven weeks and 62 weeks. And it will be built in a time of distress. Then, after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. He will die and have nothing. And the people of the prince who, the, who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's the prediction that Jesus is making. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war and desolations are determined. Daniel predicts clearly in Daniel 9, chapters 20, chapter 9, 25 through 27, that the Messiah would arrive in Jerusalem 69 weeks of years after Artaxerxes issues the decree to Nehemiah to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and its walls. Now, if you take 69 weeks, which is 69 weeks of years, and calculate the number of days, it equals one. 173,830 days. The math is really relatively easy. You don't even need to know Common Core in order to figure it out. We calculate the number of days in a week, multiply it 69 weeks by 7, and multiply it by 360 days in a year, and we come up with 173,880 days. Then if you look at a calendar... And you go back to the date of Artaxerxes' proclamation on March 5th, 1444 B.C., and you add 1,780 days, you come up with March 30th, 33 A.D., the date of Jesus' triumphal entry. Wow. <laughs> the Bible's pretty specific, isn't it? Now look back at this verse once again and notice that this verse begins with the word if. It's one of those pesky conditional statements. In fact, it's a Greek second class conditional clause. You can all like have your eyes roll back into your back of your head. That's okay. But if you have your Greek glasses, you might want to take them out and put them on so that you know what I'm talking about here. A Greek second class conditional clause is to be understood as contrary to fact. In other words, this statement assumes that the premise is false. Just for the sake of argument. So then it would read this way. 
If you, even you, even though you knew it to be true, you did nothing because it was hidden from your eyes. It was contrary to fact. But they should have known it. The religious elites of the day were blinded to the significance of this day, of Jesus' coming, because they didn't want to know its significance, because it would interfere with their life and their plans. But if they had received Jesus Christ, which is contrary to the known facts, as the Greek tells us, then he would have been made king. And he would have been received. And they would have experienced the peace that all seek. But because of their institutional blindness, they didn't accept him as their king or as the source of peace that they wanted. Just like Israel of old, they would not receive Christ just as they rejected the prophets of old and the warnings that they brought. It was now too late for Israel. Now, let me make one important point before I move on here. The Jewish concept of peace that Jesus is speaking about here is important. That peace always comes from God, from Yahweh. He is the source. For any Jew to enjoy peace in this life, it begins and ends with the right relationship with the Creator. But the religious elites were blinded to peace, the peace that God offered, because they were more infatuated with the law and controlling people and making money. So it was hidden from them. Yet the peace Jesus brought was embedded in the name of the very city in which they lived. As you probably know, Jerusalem is a compound word. It's made up of two words. Compound word. Made up of two words. Which are brought together to form one word. Jeru and Salem. Jeru is the prefix, which most linguists understand to mean city or abode. And the suffix Salem is derived from the Hebrew root word shalom, which we all know means peace. So you put the two words together, you get the city of peace. But Israel never experienced peace. Jerusalem never knew peace. It was always in the midst of war because of its apostasy. Jerusalem had been created by God to bring peace to the world, to bring peace to their land. God sent messenger after messenger, prophet after prophet, to offer them peace, and they continually rejected and killed the messengers. Now the Father sends one last messenger. He sends his own very Son, who comes bringing one last opportunity for redemption. But they again choose to reject the peace that God offers them. Do you remember how Luke began this gospel? I know that's a while ago. I went back and looked. It was like over a year ago. 14 months ago. Do you remember how he started this? It was the birth of Christ. And listen to these words about the birth of Christ emanating from an angel in Luke chapter 2. Glory to God in the highest on earth. Peace among men whom he is pleased. Peace is the goal of the religion of Israel. It's not the goal of every religion. We know Islam isn't a peaceful religion. It's about holy war. It's about jihad. But peace is certainly the goal of believers today. We want peace with God, don't we? That should be the goal of every religion. Romans 5 tells us that a believer in Jesus Christ, having been justified by faith, has peace with God. A bit further in Romans, Paul writes, May the God of peace fill you with all joy. Paul closes Romans with this blessing. May the God of peace be with you all. Now, Paul wasn't a southerner. You all. I don't think he was from Texas. So that must be a reference to all believers. All believers are to experience peace. That's the goal of a relationship with God. Rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, like-minded, live in peace, says Paul in 2 Corinthians. In Ephesians 6.3, he declares, peace be unto the brethren. And in Philippians 4.9, these things you have learned and received and heard and seen to me and practice these things, that the God of peace may be with you. Peace is the goal of our relationship with God. May the grace and the peace of God be yours in the fullest measure, says John. Peter says, grace, mercy, and peace with us all. Peace! We all want peace! What did Israel have? War. 
Why? Why did Israel have constant war? Because they rejected the peace that God sent them. They refused to receive the peace of God through the messengers that he sent and finally through the Son, Jesus Christ. It was hidden from them by their own blindness. I think many in Christendom today don't experience the peace that they so desire because they are blind to what God is doing in their lives. Do you know what blindness is? The other day I was looking for my keys. You ever do this? I'm looking for my keys. I'm yelling at Sue, where are my keys? I cannot find them. And there they were dangling at the end of my hand. I didn't have peace because I had, a, I had a meeting to go to and I couldn't find my keys to get my car and go because they were dangling there on my pudgy little fingers. So the Lord states in verse 43, the result of their rejection of the king. Look with me there. For the days will come upon you. For the days will come upon you. Something future. When your enemies will throw up a barricade against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. This prediction by Jesus, the prophet, is quite clear. Israel's enemies, your enemies, will come upon you at some future time. Well, who is their enemy at the present time? Obviously, it is the Romans. The Romans will surround them on every side, barricade them in. As you know, Rome had enslaved Israel for over 40 years. Rome was Israel's biggest and only enemy at the time. Rome was the only nation in the world that had the resources to accomplish this. Jesus says that the enemy Rome will build a siege wall around the city of Jerusalem, which will prevent any Jew from escaping and will prevent any supplies from getting into the city. The enemy, Rome, will then starve the people of God into submission. Now, as you probably know, that's exactly what did happen. Just a few years later, in 70 A.D., Rome, under the leadership of Titus, came, surrounded the city of Jerusalem, built a siege wall, and then waited until the people were eating all the animals, the rats, the goats, and each other before the troops marched in and destroyed the city and the temple. Now, I know Rome's not specifically mentioned here in the text by Jesus, but historically we know that fits this record. Roman legions encircled and starved Jerusalem into submission, just as the Lord predicted. Now in verse 44, we read what the Romans also did. They leveled the city, says verse 44, to the ground and the children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, speaking of Jerusalem. This is really a horrific prophecy. It describes the most horrible event that could come upon a city. It's complete destruction. Not one stone left unturned. Children are killed before the worst thing that could happen. The city is leveled. Again, it's not stated specifically, but the Romans had a terrible retribution for a city that revolted. They brought in plows, and they would plow the ground Flat. Not one remaining dwelling would be left. And then they would sow salt into the earth so that nothing would ever grow there. This became known as salting the earth. And it symbolized that a curse had been placed upon the city and its soil so that it would never be resettled once again. This practice of salting the earth of a captured city was a widespread practice by empires in the Near East. There's even an English poem spoken about this that's called The Siege of Jerusalem, which recounts this event. But now looking back at this verse, notice the reputation in these two verses of the pronoun you by Luke. Ten times he uses the plural pronoun you in just these two verses. This destruction is personal. It's to the Jew. It's because they refused him as king. That's why the destruction came. We learn this, we learn of the motivation through the word because, which is a result-oriented word. The Romans besieged the city and walled it in and killed your children because, because 
because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now, some people look at that verse and they go, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it means. God sent judgment upon Israel because they refused his visitation to Israel through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When they rejected Jesus as the king, they rejected the day of his visitation and they brought judgment upon themselves. Now, we all know that Israel was hoping for and expecting God to send the Messiah. For example, we read in Luke chapter 1, verse 51, and beyond this. It's a little bit of an extended quote, but listen very carefully to it. The Lord sent help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. For he visited us, And he accomplished redemption for his people. And he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy towards our father and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways to give us his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sun will rise from on high and will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Wow, it's awesome how the Word of God fits together. Instead of receiving the visitation of his son who came to bring them peace, they reject him. Despite what God had said. Through all the prophets from before, from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel, all of the prophets had prophesied about this coming one who would fulfill the need of salvation for the children of Israel and bring them peace. Now, some scholars who look at this destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD think it fulfills the scriptures concerning the judgment of Israel totally. These theologians are called preterists. I'm not a preterist. I am a dispensational premillennialist who understands the Bible from a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. So I am looking for a literal future fulfillment of these promises. This destruction of Jerusalem was just a taste of what will come. The full destruction of Israel will come in the tribulation period. These events of 70 AD were like those of the Babylonian captivity and all of the other destructions that came on Israel. They were simply warnings. This is only one of the many dysphorias that the children of Israel suffered throughout world history. But it's not the worst. The question is why? Why these judgments? Clearly, it's because the Jews refused to recognize him in his day of visitation. Or as John wrote in his gospel in a verse that you're all familiar with, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. Instead, they say, we will not have this king reign over us, or this man reign over us. And in a book by the last prophet recorded in the history of Israel, the Italian prophet named Malachi, that's a joke. In chapter 3 of his book of Malachi, he describes Jesus' rejection and his coming now, listen, now coming to the temple to restore it for its intended purposes. We read in God's word in Malachi chapter 3, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? That's a question expecting a no one, no answer. No one can endure that day. 
And who can stand when he appears? No one. For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He's bringing judgment and cleansing. That's the purpose of Jesus' return from the Galilee to Jerusalem. To first cleanse the temple and to teach the people before he will have to suffer for their sins. The purification of the temple and the cleansing of the temple must take place before his death, burial, and resurrection. Look with me at verse 45. Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out those who were selling. So Jesus goes not as a visitor to the temple, but he goes there as the divine owner and the judge. He comes to clean the temple of sin, just as was predicted by Malachi. And he then makes it his own home. We see that Jesus enters the temple and he drives out the sellers of merchandise. Why would our Lord do this? This, some might call a violent act when he's supposed to be the God of love. Isn't this a contradiction of his person? Isn't this politically incorrect? He literally, by an act of his will, throws them bodily out of the temple. Out of the temple. Well, let me explain to you why this happens. It's the Passover season. And every Jewish male was responsible to pay the temple tax, which covered one year. It amounted to half a shekel and equaled about two days' pay for the average working man. A month before the Passover would begin, a booth was set up in each of the towns across Israel where the tax could be paid. But pilgrims traveling from outside of the country to Jerusalem, as was required by the law, found this to be a great problem. When they came to celebrate the Passover and the feast which followed it, they only brought with them foreign coins to pay the tax. Some carried Greek coins, others Roman coins, others Syrian and Egyptian. So they could not pay the tax at the temple with these unclean coins. The tax had to be paid in temple half shekels. And that's where the money changers came in. In order to exchange a foreign coin for a temple half shekel, they would have to go to a money changer who would then charge them an exorbitant fee to get the right coin. So these money changers stood to make an exorbitant profit that they then shared a kickback. I don't know why I'm leaning into this microphone. It's not working. So then they would share, the money changers, a lot of this, a kickback with the high priests and the other priests. This was all aimed at the poor. They were the ones who bore the burden. But the second part of this scheme is even better. The people from outside the country would bring an animal with them to sacrifice. And as you know, the animal sacrifice had to be perfect. But to sacrifice an animal, they had to go to an animal inspector that was run by the priests and the high priests and you know the scheme that would go on they would reject all animals that came and you had to buy an animal that the high priest sold and they would of course charge exorbitant prices for that so the racket here was to make a lot of money by inflating the prices of the exchange of coins and for the sacrificial animals. So when Jesus goes to the temple and he goes in and he sees this abuse of his house going on, he becomes righteously angry and he cleanses the temple, a messianic act. It's important to note that this is not the first time this has happened. Jesus drove out the money changers at the court of the, temp, uh, of the Gentiles before. We read about this in John chapter 2, where he did it early on in his ministry. Uh, as recorded by John, it says, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up into Jerusalem. This is the very beginning of his ministry. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers sitting at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords, and he drove them out of the temple with sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And all those who were selling doves, he said, Take th- these things away and stop making, now get this, my father's house, a place of business. Now Luke records the second cleansing of the temple in this text. 
at the end of Jesus' ministry. And it's significantly different from the first cleansing. First of all, Jesus cleansed the temple in his first cleansing with a whip that he made out of cords. There's no mention of that in Luke's version. And in the first version of the the cleansing of the temple, Jesus referred, and this is very important, to the temple as my father's house. But in the second cleansing, in verse 46, Jesus says to the sellers, as it is written, and my house, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. You see the change. Jesus has fulfilled his ministry, and the house is now his. He has taken ownership of it. It's my house. A question that arises out of this verse is, where was it written? It says, Jesus says, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a robber's den. Where is it written? So we have to go back to the Old Testament to find where it is written. Because Jesus uses the word of God to justify his behavior in driving out those who have made it into a place of commerce. It is written in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13, where we find a similar event taking place in which Nehemiah learns about the high priest of the temple having sold places in the temple for a relative of his name, Tobiah, to move in and take up residence. As soon as Nehemiah learns this, he drives Tobiah out of the temple. It says in verse 4 of Nehemiah 4, Prior to this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, where formerly they put grain offerings and the contributions for the priests. But during all this time, this is Nehemiah, I was not in Jerusalem. But when I came to Jerusalem and learned this evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God, it was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. So just as Nehemiah cleansed the temple, so does Jesus, because they had begun to use the temple for its wrong purposes, for commerce instead of prayer and worship. Now, Luke tells us, and Mark tells us, that the place that Jesus cleansed was the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was a place where the Gentiles could come and learn about God, about Yahweh. It was the only place, in fact, that a Jew could talk to a Gentile about the things of God, about the true and living God. It was, in a sense, a place of evangelism. And these men had turned it into a marketplace. Just so the one percenters, the high priest and the priest, could make money off of people. They chose money over God. Instead of praying for people, they were praying on people. So the temple was no longer a house of prayer, but a den of thieves. And this allusion to Tobiah in the book of Nehemiah chapter 4 is what Jesus is referring to when he says it is written. Plus, he's got two other places in which he specifically references. For example, in Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7, it is called a house of prayer. Let me read that for you just so you know it. Isaiah writes, Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer. Get this. For all peoples, says Isaiah. Gentiles. The purpose of the temple was to be a place of devotion and prayer and meditation, not for commerce. But it was no longer a house of prayer, according to Jesus. It was a place of doing business. The second part of the quote from the Old Testament, it is written, is actually a commentary on what they were doing. Jesus contrasts the divine purpose to be a place of worship with what it had become, being used for nefarious reasons. Jesus quotes from Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11, saying this there. Has this house which you call by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. So many in Judaism 
had turned the house of God into a place of making money. They had formalized religion. It became just a thing to do. And in fact, if you look at the history that Jeremiah is going through with the people of Israel, they were murdering, stealing, and corrupt. And that's why he calls it a den of thieves. Rather than these men putting their trust in God and in the... And in him, in a relationship, they had put it into a temple. They were now using the temple to be a place, like a den of thieves, rather than a place of prayer. So the Lord Jesus returns to the temple, intending it to return it to its purpose, a place of worship. Then he begins to teach daily in the temple. And all the opposition rises up against him. Why? (laughs) They were losing a ton of money. They were losing a ton of money. And in these last two verses of this chapter, we see the plot which arises as Jesus teaches in the temple. Look at verse 47. He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among them were trying to destroy him. You almost can feel anger in the words, don't you? The Lord's going to the temple every day, speaking to the people on the portico of Solomon, teaching the regular folks, and they're loving it. They're taking it all in. They were amazed by his teaching, especially in light of all the garbage they were getting from the Pharisees and the Sadducees about a formalized religion. And so the reaction of the regular folks to Jesus was positive. They liked his teaching. They were open to everything he had to say. They listened to him. Where the chief priests and scribes and leading men or elders, if you will, of Judaism, who normally taught in the temple, didn't like him at all. The religious elites didn't listen to him in order to learn. They listened to him for one purpose, and that was to catch him, to entrap him. They wanted to kill him, to destroy him. The enemies of Jesus, the one percenters, were losing a ton of money, and that was unacceptable. We read in verse 48, they couldn't find anything that they might do. They couldn't entrap him in anything. They couldn't find that little thing they could catch him on. But the people, they were hanging on his every word. Clearly, the reaction of the regular people in Israel was different from that of the religious elites, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders. The people were hanging on his every word, and the lawyers were trying to catch him. You see, they refused to have him rule over them, so they sought his death. The result of all of this is judgment. They should have known on this day, the day of his visitation, that he brought salvation to them and peace. But they were blinded to him, willfully blinded to him, because it didn't fit their purposes. Okay, so what does all this mean to you and me? How can I apply this to my life? First of all, this means that we should be pro-Israel. I am pro-Israel. I love the Jewish people. Jesus loved the land and he loved the people. The Temple Mount is still his dwelling place, despite there being an evil Muslim mosque sitting atop it. Someday soon that mosque is going to come down and a new temple is going to be built and Jesus is going to rule and reign from that very spot. What we can take from this text is that we too should grieve over the choices of the Jewish people. They still reject Jesus. We have a responsibility now to go there and witness to them in the court of the Gentiles. It's been reversed. And as the psalmist said, we should not only witness to them, but we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Jesus literally wept over the city, and you and I should grieve over their choices of rejecting Jesus as their king. You see, if they'd only responded positively, the kingdom of God would have been ushered in and peace would have ensued. But the people chose to follow evil, self-centered men who only were out for themselves and they rejected Jesus Christ and the whole nation was held responsible for their choice. May we learn from them not to have evil leaders over us. There are many in Christendom today who don't believe Israel holds a special place 
in the heart of God. They don't believe in a special program for Israel outside that of the church. They are evil. And how do you know they are evil? Just look at their lifestyles. I tell you this, if they're rich, if they have airplanes and cars and money, they're evil. I say that categorically. If they're rich, if they're not giving the money back to the Lord for his use, then they're getting what they wanted out of it. Jesus had no money. He had no place to lay his head. The 12 disciples had no money. They existed on the offerings of others. I have no money. I'm not enriched. But people are stupid. Now, if my wife was here, she'd be mad at me. But people are stupid. They follow evil leaders. They invest themselves in people instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. We follow men. That's a problem. Don't follow me. I'm telling you that right now. You're going to be dissatisfied. You follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You follow a man, I guarantee you, eventually you will be miserable and unhappy because they will fail you. The only one that won't fail you is Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus loved the church. He loved the nation of Israel. He loved the land. And one day he's going to be back there ruling over Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's going to be ruling over the church and you and I will be there with him. He came first, however, as a Jew before he ever became our Savior. We need to be aware that evil men in the church will pervert and subvert the truth for their own aggrandizement. A man of God does not look at the church as a place to become enriched, but a place to serve. We are not kings. We are servants. They have turned the worship of God into a place of merchandise, selling their books, their tapes, their prayer cloths, their crusades, their conferences, all at exorbitant amounts, all for cash. All for the Benjamins. They fleece the sheep, turn away from such dens of thieves. Don't be taken in. Would you like me to name names? You can forget that. <laughs> Not today. <laughs> Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we follow, who is our Savior, our Lord, our God. Help us, Father, never to follow men. Help us always to follow the Savior. Even Paul said, don't follow me. Follow me as I follow the Lord. Help us to do so. Help us to love Israel. Help us, Father, to live rightly in this present world as we look for the return of our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.